We're going to look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, and I'll, I'll read the text for us, and then uh, we'll make some observations. You can follow along as I read Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's commands here for the church to stand are really emboldening, aren't they? In the, the depictions of the armor, this, this is a magnificent, magnificent text of scripture. And there are several ways that we could go about thinking about it. One would be to work through this text and visualize each piece of armor and try to make a connection between that piece of armor and the spiritual reality connected to it. Or perhaps you could look at these spiritual pieces of armor and compare and contrast them with the fruit of the Spirit or something like that. Um, I, I am going to go a little bit of a different direction than that, that this morning. But at the end, I want to at least steer your thinking so that you can reflect on this text this week in terms of the spiritual pieces of armor and what it might look like for you to take up that armor in your spiritual life. So I'll conclude with that, giving you some, a, a path to follow there. Um, but instead of trying to identify all of the pieces of armor along the way, I want to position this text of scripture within the larger message of Ephesians in the larger message of the Bible so that you can see it, I think, rightly and more helpfully as you then move to the individual application of the smaller units. So in, in uh, good preacher fashion, we'll have three main points this morning that you can follow along with. The first is that the church faces a spiritual battle. The church faces a spiritual battle. This is the first thing that becomes very clear in this text of scripture. Paul writes that the whole purpose for putting on the armor of God is so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. He notes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, and the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Now, there are some Christians throughout history who have uh, looked at texts like this and other texts and said, we face a physical battle that's also spiritual, and so we're going to have a conquest or a crusade or something like that. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what Paul is getting at here. He's trying to communicate that the church faces a spiritual battle. Now, Paul's original readers would have just grabbed on to this. In Ephesus, there were pagan temples, and there was a lot of fear about spiritual forces. So people would purchase things like amulets, and there would be these various rituals that would help protect them from spiritual forces. So they needed no convincing that they were facing a spiritual battle. They needed to be convinced that Christ and his spiritual warfare is what you need to fight that spiritual battle. 
I think the emphasis falls a little bit harder on, on the side of needing to be convinced that we're truly facing a spiritual battle in our modern era. In the modern day, there's just a disbelief in the spiritual realm, and we need to start by being convinced of that, that there is a spiritual realm, and we do face a, a spiritual battle. Um, there's this guy named Charles Taylor who wrote a book called A Secular Age. And in that book, he tried to show the development of modern thinking where we moved from believing in a spiritual world to not believing in a spiritual world. And, and this movement resulted in a hard divide between the natural and the supernatural. And even the way that we use that terminology, we might say something like, uh, I'm facing a physical challenge right now. I don't think there's anything supernatural there going on. But in the ancient world, and really even into recent human history, instead of seeing this dichotomy or division between the supernatural and, and the natural, or the spiritual and the physical, everyone looked at the world as a lot more porous, where these two things are sort of overlapping and connected in a way that you can't easily divide and distinguish them. Uh, but with this divide, even those who would believe in the supernatural realm or in, in the spiritual battle that we face do so in the words of Charles Taylor uh, without being able to help looking over their shoulder from time to time, looking sideways, living our faith in a condition of doubt or uncertainty. So even those of us who had affirmed the spiritual reality in a spiritual battle do so within conditions of unbelief where, where we kind of look over our shoulder and say, Ah, but I don't know if I fully believe this, such that when um, we're facing a challenge, we might be very hesitant to say there is, there is something spiritual going on here. Our first instinct will be to identify a physical, um, non-supernatural, purely natural problem. So uh, I think that we need to be convinced that we are facing a spiritual battle. Now, um, how do we do that? How, how do we convince ourselves we're facing a spiritual battle? Well, I, I want to give three suggestions to those of us who might struggle to believe in, in a spiritual realm or a spiritual world. And then I want to give three suggestions to those of us who might be overly preoccupied or fearful of a spiritual realm and spiritual world. Okay, so for those of us who perhaps would have trouble believing that we truly are facing a spiritual battle, um, you, you need to read the Bible a lot. Uh, the Bible is our ground for, for interpreting the events of the world. Our goal in reading the Bible ultimately is to gain the perspective of the biblical authors, to understand the world in the way that they understand the world, and they understood the world in terms of a spiritual battle. Throughout the Bible, there's this language of cosmic warfare that begins um, in the Garden of Eden. And it extends all the way to the very end where, where um, Christ reigns forevermore. So when I am suggesting that we need to read the Bible and gain the perspective of the biblical authors, I am not suggesting that we throw out any physical or psychological explanations for, for troubles that we might face. We, we need to um, realize that by common grace, God has used scientists and psychologists to identify chemicals and other things in our brain that contribute toward the challenges that we face. Um, but we also need to recognize that there's genuinely a spiritual battle that's being experienced. So against those who might say, 
Well, just as we now scientifically know that when the Bible talks about the sun rising, the sun doesn't rise, that's just our experience, so too when I face uh, depression or darkness or something like that, um, we, we use that experiential language, but really we understand that only chemical brain things matter. Well, what I'm trying to say is that both matter. Um, we don't reject uh, scientific advances, nor do we reject the biblical author's interpretation of the battles that we face. Um, let me give you what might be a slippery slope argument, but in the end, if we reject the spiritual realm, then the Bible has really nothing to say for us. Because Christ's victory doesn't come in terms of a scientific advance, but in terms of a spiritual victory over the forces of evil and darkness. So, so what I want to say to you first is to read the Bible and try to gain the in interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. Second, as you navigate this world seeking to um, reinforce belief in this reality of a spiritual battle, I would just suggest that there are places you shouldn't look and, and there are realms of Christianity that have a hyper focus and fascination with uh, demons and the like. And I, I think you can find those pretty easily. Uh, out of curiosity, I searched demonology on Amazon and there were a host of uh, books, and, and someone sent me one this week, of a self-published book on demonology. And, and you want to avoid those sorts of things. Those things are going to give you a wrong idea of what the spiritual battle is. First, I would suggest read the Bible and, and try to gain your grounding there. Third, I, I would want to suggest to you that you can cultivate a theological imagination by reading extra-biblical books, um, books like, I would say, the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or books like these where the, their authors are in a fictive and imaginative way depicting the real spiritual battle that is faced by Christians. Um, these, these books, I think, will stretch your theological imaginations and um, prove helpful. Perhaps the, what I would suggest reading first would be uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I think that that allegorical look at the Christian life and the battle we face will stretch your imagination to be able to factor in the way that the Bible talks about our, our spiritual warfare. Now, to those of you who struggle with disbelief or to with with um, overly you know thinking about these things fascination with this the spiritual and especially dark demonic realms uh, my first word would be to say do not engage in things that will deform your theological imagination I think that there's a whole genre of movies and music and books called a horror genre that can unhelpfully form your imagination in a way that doesn't deal rightly or truthfully with, with the way that the Bible depicts the spiritual battle. Um, so, so I would say uh, resist filling your mind and your imagination with those sorts of writings and depictions. Second, um, if your fascination or, or the, the captivating nature of the, the spiritual battle grabs onto you in a way that would make you reject medical advances and scientific helps as you face these things, I, I think you should be cautioned against making everything so spiritualized that you reject the way that God made our bodies. Um, the, the resurrection 
is God's word to you that one day your body will function correctly and some of the challenges you face won't be met until you receive that perfectly attuned glorified body. But just as there are mitigating features in other elements of life, so too are there with scientific advances in medication. You might be wise to pursue good godly pastoral counsel as you weigh those things, but don't reject the the scientific world because the spiritual and, and perhaps your fear of the spiritual world has such a strong grasp on you. But then third, just as to those who maybe disbelieve in the spiritual world, I would just recommend read the Bible a lot because in the Bible you find the true source of conquering over the demonic domains of darkness, and that is in Jesus Christ. And and you probably can relate much more closely to those in Ephesus who are receiving this letter than those who disbelieve in the spiritual world because these people found great hope in Paul's instructions in, in showing the church that they face a spiritual battle. But as I want to go on to show later in this sermon, ultimately there's a victory promised in that spiritual battle because it's already been won in the messianic divine warrior, Jesus Christ. So, so we're facing a spiritual battle. The church is facing this battle, and, and we need to recognize that. Now, I want to add one more layer to this reality that the church faces a spiritual battle that we draw from the language of the armor that, that Paul prescribes here. If we're reading that description in an individualistic sort of way, we might think that I as an individual put on this armor, and I as an individual go out and fight a spiritual battle. That is not the way that armies work. Um, Whether you're reading the Greek mythology, and that's probably what this armor is drawn from, all of the statues and architecture and paintings that would have been all around in in Ephesus with classical Greek um, armor. That's probably what you should be looking at if you want to visualize it. Uh, Those individuals went out to battle together. Um, They certainly fought one-on-one in a larger battle, and I think that's a great picture for us. There is a sense in which each of us face our own individual spiritual battle, but we never face it alone. And and ultimately, we need the Christian community as we face this battle together. So as we face this battle, let me just encourage you, connect to the Christian community. Don't go through this on your own. Um, don't, Don't think it's me and Jesus against the domains of darkness. Jesus has brought you into a community of faith who stands alongside of you. And in fact, that's the exact language that appears over and over again in this text. Um, the imagery is not of you gearing out up and uh, dropping from, from a plane into enemy territory and fighting a battle on your own. The command over and over and over again is to stand. And, and I think the imagery that we should have is of a well-trained army standing out on the front lines as a, an enemy is, army is running towards them. And the way that the army will remain firm and undefeated, the way they'll prevail, is not if soldiers break from the ranks and do their own thing, but if they stand firm and faithful together. So I think the call for us is to fight and ultimately to stand firm and faithful as a Christian community. Okay, so as we read this text, that's the first thing we've got to grasp is we face, as a church and as Christians, we face a spiritual battle. But then number two, I want to say that we need to frame this, uh, this passage of Scripture within the reality that the church participates in the larger redemptive story. The spiritual battle that we face 
is not unique to us, in the way that we face it is not unique to us. Instead, it finds some sort of similarities with the people of God throughout the ages as they too have faced a spiritual battle as part of the redemptive story. Now, in previous weeks, I tried to draw parallels between Israel's experience of redemption and the church's experience of redemption. And I want to briefly walk through this again. So you see how this text falls and positions the church in the same place that Israel was positioned right before they entered into the promised land. So both begin with redemption from captivity, one to Egypt, one to sin. Both then take on this creation of a new humanity, a new people, God's people is his household. And then both have uh, this responsibility to relate to God's temple. Old Testament Israel had the temple, first tabernacle, and then temple established in their physical land. Well, in the new covenant, in the church, we become a temple. So Paul says that we're being built up as a holy temple for a dwelling place for the Lord. And then there's instructions given for the life of the community, and it concludes with Israel on the brink of warfare and conquest and physical army, and uh, the church here now being girded up spiritually in spiritual armor. And I, I will suggest some sort of conquest, but a different kind, not the kind that goes in and takes one territory um, to establish the temple, but instead as the temple spreads across the earth to, to spread God's glory across the world. Now, there are some important differences between Israel and the church here and between Paul's teaching on warfare and conquest here and what you might find in the book of Joshua, for instance. I want to highlight two of them. The first is that the church is not called to physical warfare, but to stand firm and faithful. So whereas Israel was called to enter into the promised land, um, the church is called to, to stand firm. Be where you are as Christ has called you because Christ has already conquered. There is in one sense a conquering that is already done. And so all we need to do is to remain firm and steadfast standing in the territory that Christ has already claimed. Now, as we look at Old Testament Israel, one of the main reasons Israel was supposed to go in and conquer this land was because they were going to establish the temple in that land, okay? Uh, so it's hard for us to think about it in this way, but if, a, if an army won a battle, essentially everyone said the God of their army won the battle. And if, the, if that army lost the battle, their God was looked at as having been defeated. And so as Israel goes into the land, a message is sent that God is winning this cosmic warfare. He's defeating all of the false gods, and he's going to establish his residence in the temple in the promised land. Well, when we get into the New Testament, Paul has already explained that Christ has conquered all the false gods. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes that Christ has, in his resurrection and ascension, has been raised above every power and authority. And so in that sense, the, the reality is that Christ has already defeated all false gods. He's already defeated all of the domain of darkness. And so there is no territory to conquer. There's no, nothing to prove in a sense. Christ has proved his victory already. And of course, we understand this in an already not yet sense, just as the kingdom of God is here in an already and not yet sense. So we're not called to go and conquer, but we're called to stand firm and faithful. 
which leads to the second difference and distinction. And that is that the church is not called to establish one sacred space as Israel was, but to extend God's presence across the earth. I've already hinted at this, but one of the main reasons for Israel to go into that land was to secure a sacred space for the temple to be built, for God's presence to dwell. And, and then Israel had a responsibility of calling the nations to come and see. Come, come and see the glory of God. Well, throughout the prophets, and what becomes clear in the New Testament, is that God would create a plan such that the knowledge of the glory of God would extend across the entire earth, just as the waters cover the sea. So that instead of God's presence being, in one sense, localized in, in the Jerusalem temple, it would now spread across the entire earth. In keeping, in keeping with the original creation purposes, where men and women as image bearers of God, reflections of God's presence, were told, to be multiply, were told to multiply and fill the earth. Well, now Paul has said, you, the church, are God's temple. God is dwelling in you. And so what happens is as people receive the message of the gospel, and they as individuals become temples of the Holy Spirit and, and congregate together as a thick, full version of the temple in the gathered church, this is going to spread across the globe without a single sword being lifted up because it's going to be the glory of God, the sword of the Spirit, we might say, in the Word of God that convinces people of, of God's greater glory and draws them in and makes them a dwelling for his presence. So just as on the final day when the fullness of God's kingdom is here and the prophecies about um, swords being, you know, hammered down into plows, well, already in some sense, we, we plow and plant the seeds of the word and we don't use a, a sword to conquer for God. Instead, we spread his presence and everywhere Christians' feet are planted, the presence of God dwells. And, and that is a stark distinction such that we don't engage, engage in warfare and conquest in the same way that Israel does. We take God's presence with us wherever we go. And as we see churches planted in, in, the, in our area and across the globe, this is coming true. That's the kind of warfare. And as those churches are planted, they're called to stand firm in the faith. So, so we participate in the redemptive story. And when we're called to put on this armor, it draws us into that story. It shows the parallels. And we spread God's presence. And we stand on the brink of the promised land in a sense too. Because the next phase that happens in redemptive history is the fullness of the kingdom of God. Not just in one parcel of land, but across the earth. That gives us great hope, doesn't it? It, it gives us great confidence to say, I can stand firm here as we progress forward. I can stand in the victory that Christ has already won. How do we stand firm? Well, I, I want to give you one suggestion. There, there are many that we could draw from the text. Paul points individuals in verse 17 to take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul was thinking of, but, but Paul knew the Old Testament really, really well. And I have an idea that Paul has been reading Israel's history, and as they get to the promised land, to, to a radical transformation in the redemptive story to the next stage, I think he's reading the book of Joshua and reflecting on Joshua's word to Israel right before they go in and conquer the promised land. So in Joshua chapter 1, um, Joshua uh, receives this word from the Lord. Be strong and courageous, 
for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous. Now you might expect him to say, to rush out onto the battlefield in your armor with your swords and your spears. Instead, he says, be very strong and courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think Paul is reading that and saying, we are the temple of God. He is with us wherever we go. And and we stand firm being strong and courageous as we root ourselves in the word of the Lord in his instructions. So so we face a spiritual battle. We do so as part of this redemptive story and we participate in it in that way. Now, I want to move to a third idea and this is going to be the hardest one to demonstrate. It's the least clear of everything that I've said so far. But I want to say that we stand firm, we persevere in the divine warrior. Now, what I'm trying to suggest here is that using the the metaphorical language of putting on armor, Paul is really saying the same thing as he says in other places of putting on Christ or putting on the new humanity that you've been created it, you know, in, a, in God's image according to his likeness. So, so put these things on. And I think this is just a metaphorical, figurative way of saying put on Christ. Stand firm by putting on Jesus Christ. I think there are internal clues throughout Ephesians that would point us in this direction. So from the very beginning, it's hard to come across a single paragraph where Paul does not describe the church as being in Christ. Their existence, their life, their flourishing is in Christ. And and throughout Paul's letters, he talks about putting on Christ, putting on Christ's righteousness, these sorts of ideas. And I think what Paul is saying here is not identify particular features of righteousness and, and put those on and gear up in that way. But these are parts for the whole saying, put on Christ, who is in other places depicted as the divine warrior. Um, Christ often is depicted as a divine warrior. I'll get, I'll get that to that in a moment. But if we read Ephesians and understand that Christ has conquered over spiritual powers, here I think we should understand Paul is saying the way you conquer is by putting on Christ, by being like him. And, and you become like him by imitating him in, in this world and in this way. And, and that's what he's done in all of his instructions so far when he tells us to live in a certain way, it's to imitate Christ. And I think this is just an extension of that. Christ is depicted as the divine warrior as he rules over these spiritual powers. But this comes into play more when we turn to Isaiah 59. And I would encourage you to turn there. I think, again, Paul knows the Old Testament really well. And as he's writing this, I think that he's tracking with the summary of of redemptive history that's presented in Isaiah 59. I want to show you some of these connections. I put some on the screen for you. Uh, but you can follow along skimming the text if, if you'd like as well. In Isaiah 59, uh, the, the prophet is describing uh, the, the trouble that Israel faces. And the initial question is raised, is the Lord 
too weak to save or not? And Ephesians answers that by saying, no, he's, he's determined to save people be, before the foundation of the world. And the more we read in Ephesians, there's this call to rest in the strength of God that's proved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the end of Ephesians 1. Didn't put it on the screen there for you. But, but Paul is concerned in Ephesians to prove that God is strong to save. And he proves it in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But then this prophecy in Isaiah continues on, indicating that the iniquities of Israel separate them from God, and that Israel's hands, metaphorically, are defiled by blood. But Paul shows in Ephesians that the blood of Christ draws us near. So where there was separation from God in Christ, now we're being united to God and to one another. Isaiah points out that Israel is hoping for light, but there's only darkness. They want the light of God's presence, but there's only darkness. Well, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5.8 that now in Christ, you who were once darkness, you are now light in the Lord. And what's going to be the linchpin in the connections here is that the, the prophet goes on to talk about how the Lord looks out at his people and the Lord is dismayed and astounded that no one is interceding. No one is trying to draw near to God. So he sends someone on his own. This messianic divine warrior who puts on righteousness as body armor and puts on the helmet of salvation. And Paul draws on this language when he instructs us to put on righteousness like body armor and to put on the helmet of salvation. And ultimately, I think Paul is saying Christ has done this and now we need to imitate Christ. We need to put on Christ because of who we are as Christ body. We are the body now that acts as Christ and represents Christ in this world. Then though I didn't put this on this slide, I was thinking while we were singing a, a little bit about the Holy Spirit, there's another connection here between Isaiah 59 and our text. And that is at the end of Isaiah 59, in verse 21, the Lord says this. He says, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. So how do the people live who are rescued by the divine warrior in Isaiah 59? By speaking with the words of the spirit. Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll look at this next week, the way that we continue standing firm, Paul writes in verse 18, is to pray at all times in the spirit. So what comes out of our mouths, what abides in our mouths is the words of the Spirit. And so we as Christ's people standing firm are to speak the words of the Spirit that have been promised to us in the new covenant made available through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what I think Paul is saying is put on Christ. You are his body, act as Christ, represent Christ in this world. And as you stand firm in that way, you, you are fulfilling Christ's goal. He, he wants himself and his church should be represented as you look like him throughout the ages. So we have considered the fact that we're facing a spiritual battle. We do so as participants in the redemptive story. And ultimately, we do so as we imitate Christ. We put on Christ and we stand firm in the spirit. Now, in the end, though, we need to ask, what do we do with these smaller pieces of text? So we have this larger framework that will guide us now. We know that we don't put on Kevlar and, and grab a, a gun and, and fight for the Lord that way. We don't do that. 
even though there are theological systems that would commend that, we, we don't try to enforce Christ's kingdom in a, a physical way by going to war against, against those who would resist it. Instead, we put on Christ and we imitate him. But how do we grab onto the language of this text and how do we put it in the larger redemptive story and then transpose it into our lives? Well, I picked one of them that connects to Isaiah 59, the larger redemptive story in our life now, and I just want to walk through this to give you some ideas of how you'll put this text into action in your own life. In Isaiah 59, um, one of the reasons for the lack of hope there is because there are wicked individuals. And in Isaiah 59, 7, the, the prophet says that their feet run after evil and they rush to shed innocent blood. And over and over again, whether you're reading the Proverbs or the Psalms or elsewhere in the, the New Testament, there are descriptions of people whose, whose feet are quick to run after evil. There's violence and sin that prevails. Now, as we think about that imagery within the larger redemptive story, it, it, we understand that this is the work of, of the adversary, the devil, because that, that one is going to be defeated by the foot of, of the Messiah crushing its head. So instead of seeing feet like the Messiah's feet that run quickly to do righteousness over and over again in human history and in our daily experience, we see feet of people who are running quickly after evil. Even as we read the headlines from the last couple weeks, the amount of murders that are taking place in, in the Twin Cities and other atrocities that are happening, we can say and we can lament that there are feet that don't look like Jesus' feet running to do righteousness. There are feet everywhere that are running to do evil. Even shedding of blood. That's not just a, a figure of speech, but there is evil and wickedness connected to the feet of people that run quickly after it. Now, as we get to um, Ephesians, we recognize that instead of feet of violence, we need feet that are accompanied by peace, that bring peace with them whenever they go. And in fact, even in Isaiah 59, there's, there's this individual who's going to cut off the feet who run to shed blood and do wickedness. But, but Paul pictures that in Ephesians through the Messiah who proclaims a gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace proclaimed by Jesus Christ brings peace to those who are near and to those who are far off. That's the language of Ephesians 2. It brings peace and reconciliation between God and humanity and between warring humanity, pictured most clearly between Jews and Gentiles. So we understand that there's this messianic divine warrior who proclaims a gospel of peace that results in reconciliation. And then as we come to this text where we are to imitate Christ, there's this language that Paul gives us in verse 15 to stand with our feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. So Paul is saying, be like Jesus who reverses the entirety of human history that where you find feet ready to bring violence. Take on the feet of Jesus that through the shedding of his blood now run forward ready to spread peace, to spread the gospel of peace. As we look at the, Paul's larger teaching, when we take on Christ and when we act as Christ, Paul can say this in Romans 16. And this is one of my favorite lines. The church and Christ are so identified as they imitate him and, and put on his victory and his armor that Paul can say in, in verse 20, 
um, that even though the time is evil, he can say this, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And that's the story that we participate in. So as we go into this week, as we walk out of here, we should be putting on our shoes of the gospel of peace so that wherever our feet go, we go to declare the peace offered in Christ that brings reconciliation between God and humanity and between people. So, so children in this church, when, when you go back to your home and you talk to your brothers and sisters as you're waiting for food to be ready, you speak as people who put on the tennis shoes of peace. So you bring the markers of peace with you wherever you go. When, when we go into our workplace and, and we walk into that office meeting where there's some inner office conflict, we look down at our feet and say, I have sandaled my feet. I put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and I am going to be a word of charity and kindness even where others are wrong. And, and when we relate to our neighbors this week as as their dog ruins our yards, or, or as they do something annoying, we speak not with the feet of violence and revenge, but the feet of the gospel of peace. And, and wherever we go, we recognize that the gospel of peace that we've sandaled our feet with declare the larger gospel that, that God's presence goes with us. And we image him and declare him. And now we can be a meeting place for an unbelieving world, an unbelieving coworker or friend, where they come to see and to know God as we spread the knowledge of God across the globe wherever we go. So I would encourage you to meditate on the, this text this week and to look at this imagery and connect it to other texts in the scripture and start to imagine what it looks like for you to walk around with Christ-likeness on you, with, with the sandals of peace on you wherever you go. May God do that for us as individuals and for us as a church. Let's ask him for help in this. Father, this imagery goes beyond our normal experiences. We don't see people wearing armor every day. But as we read the biblical text, we see this so beautifully illustrated in Christ. And it's our desire that we would look like him, that we would take up his victory in our own, that we would find hope and steadfastness in him. We confess that we waver. We confess that we often fail to hold on to Christ. So we rejoice that he holds onto us so firmly and that by his firm hand, we can stand firm until that final day of his return. Help us to do this. We trust that by your spirit, you will bring this to pass. In Christ we pray, amen.